Welcome to Liquid Church Media. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered live at Liquid Church by Pastor Tim Lucas. For more content, log on to liquidchurch.com or visit one of our campuses in the New Jersey metro area. Liquidchurch.com, where truth is relevant and grace wins. Recently, there's been a lot of talk about heaven and hell in the afterlife. Some people say hell's an antiquated notion, you know, like a scare tactic, as if a God of love couldn't possibly condemn people to die and burn in fire forever. At the same time, nobody raises a fuss about heaven. In fact, for every American who thinks they're going to hell, there are 120 who believe they're headed to heaven. Isn't that convenient? It's like there are these parallel tracks we all believe life runs on. When people live a bad life or they screw up royally, we say, oh, he's going on a highway to hell. He's going to hell in a handbasket. If they lead a good life, we say, no, heaven's her final destination. She's a saint. She's definitely going to heaven. But is it possible our concepts of both, of heaven and hell, are too small? My buddy's a golfer, and he said, I think heaven is like one long, continuous round of golf that goes on and on and never ends. And I thought, funny, that seems like hell to me. I mean, is heaven, little angels strumming their harps on fluffy white clouds, is that the best we can do? Is hell really full of flames? And and even if it is, is that God's epic plan to scare us into loving him? When it comes to the afterlife and eternity, I think most of us are at a crossroads. But I believe the truth about heaven and hell are even greater than we can imagine. All right, what's up, Liquid Church? want to welcome you to our new series, Heaven, Hell, and the Afterlife. And uh, I will begin with a startling statement. Are you ready for it? Wait for it. Hell is hot. Oh, I don't mean like fire and brimstone, burning torment, hot, 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 hot. We all know that kind of part, you know, kind of stereotype. But in terms of a hot button in our cultural conversation, the topic of hell has really never been hotter. There was a recent firestorm kind of ignited by a Christian pastor named Rob Bell. How many of you heard of Rob? Anybody? He was a year ahead of me at Wheaton, actually. He leads a church in Michigan called Mars Hill, and he wrote a book provocatively titled Love Wins, a book about heaven, hell, and the fate of every person who ever lived. That's a pretty ambitious title right there. And that firestorm of controversy ignited almost immediately. Critics from conservative camps branded Bell kind of a universalist who suggests that, hey, everybody gets to heaven in the end. Now, why would that be? Because a God of love, he would argue, couldn't possibly judge people and throw them into hell. How is that loving? Maybe you echo that sentiment. That, that, honestly, that controversy was picked up very quickly in the mainstream media. Hell actually made the cover of Time Magazine. Did you see this? The week before Easter, the cover read, what if there's no hell? Like what leverage would you know, the church world possibly have for people to come to know God? And so this spiritual debate has kind of bubbled up in our, in our culture. And uh, Rob Bell's appeared on uh, several news shows. was kind of grilled on MSNBC by Martin Bashir. And it's been interesting to watch this unfold because what's happened is the debate about hell has kind of polarized into a standoff between these two camps. 
On the right, you have more conservative pastors like Mark Driscoll, who kind of rigorously defends the historic orthodox view of hell as a place of eternal conscious torment. And he has squared off against Bell, who's trying to articulate this kind of you know, more progressive view that is about asking questions and telling stories. And he says, you know, any story that hinges on people being thrown into a lake of fire by a God of love can hardly be considered good news. Now, what's fascinating to me is that both pastors actually lead large, influential evangelical megachurches. In fact, both of their churches are named Mars Hill. Each of them has tens of thousands of people. Both are passionate about reaching, you know, non-believers with the gospel, and yet their views couldn't be in starker contrast. In fact, let me give you a little taste of Bell. Here's the teaser for his book that first sparked the controversy. Several years ago, we had an art show at our church, and people brought in all kinds of sculptures and paintings, and we put them on display, and there was this one piece that had a quote from Gandhi in it. And lots of people found this piece compelling. They'd stop and sort of stare at it and take it in and reflect on it, but not everybody found it that compelling. Somewhere in the course of the art show, somebody attached a handwritten note to the piece, and on the note, they had written, reality check, he's in hell. Gandhi's in hell? He is? And someone knows this for sure and and felt the need to let the rest of us know? Will only a few select people make it to heaven? And will billions and billions of people burn forever in hell? And if that's the case, how do you become one of the few? Is it what you believe or what you say or what you do or who you know or something that happens in your heart? Or do you need to be initiated or baptized or take a class or converted or being born again? How does one become one of these few? Gandhi's in hell? Really? And we know this because? You kind of get his point, actually. It's pretty provocative for a Christian pastor The candid news is that, well, if the gospel, which means good news, the good news of Jesus is so good, then why does it sometimes feel so bad for many non-believers who hear that message? As if there is this small group of elect who are going to heaven and the rest, everyone is just getting thrown into, you know, into flames. And, and, And he's like, is that true? How would you answer that question? Well, if you're Mark Driscoll, who is Rob Bell's kind of doppelganger, evil twin, that would be to you. That's an easy question with a very clear answer. Will everyone who doesn't know about Jesus go to hell? Yes. 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 If you don't know Jesus, you go to hell. Let's talk about you. Have you received Jesus? Have you trusted in Jesus? Have you turned to Jesus? If not, you are in the path of the wrath of God. You are headed to the conscious, eternal torments of hell. Let me say it clearly. Let me say it plainly. Let me say it loudly. Let me say it lovingly. Let me say it pleadingly. You are in danger. Yes. Yes. Without Jesus, you go to hell. I just wish he'd give a straight answer. You know, I just kind of feel like he hedges a little bit. Uh, Driscoll's kind of like a modern-day Jonathan Edwards, okay? Like sinners in the hands of an angry God kind of thing. And it's fascinating to me 
two influential young pastors, both leading churches called Mars Hill, and yet their views could not be in starker contrast. Do you see the tension here? Maybe you have felt this yourself. The debate basically hinges on this question. How do you reconcile the idea of a loving God with judgment and hell and all of that? The the idea of fire and punishment seems cruel, barbaric, violent, kind of very frightening. How do you reconcile that with this God who's love? And here's the deal. Although this debate has kind of bubbled up and is now front page news, it's hardly a new question. In fact, the problem of hell is as old as civilization. The Egyptians, for instance, they were obsessed with life after death. They actually buried their dead in ornate coffins, stored their mummified bodies in pyramids filled with gold that included maps and transportation so that they could navigate their way through the afterlife. So this burning question, you know, what really happens when we die is both ancient and as relevant as the cover of Time magazine in the 21st century. Cultures change, but the questions remain timeless. Is hell a literal place? What's heaven like? Is heaven, you know, just cherubs sitting on clouds strumming their little harps? That's a question I asked in the opening video. Is it possible our concepts of both hell and heaven are too small, too informed by kind of our Western notion of like streets of gold and and a guy with a, you know, a a pitchfork and like, I'm guessing, in fact, you have questions of your own. And right now at the start of this series, I want to hear them. When you uh, came in today, you received a thing that we call a connection card. That's a little card. You can put your name on the front. Write your question on the back. You don't even have to put your name on if you don't want. If you want to give us an anonymous question about heaven, hell, the afterlife. Well, um, what I'm going to do is this week, we're going to look at, read all those questions. And what we're going to do is I'm going to take some of the recurring ones and try to weave them in and answer them throughout this series. Um, we'll pick those up at the end of today's service. If you're at church online, just type it in the chat room and we'll try to get those questions in there. And here's the deal. What we're going to do is I'm not going to give you my opinion, okay, about the questions that you're asking. In fact, I'm not even interested in settling the debate like, oh, so who's right? Is it Rob Bell or is he a heretic or Mark Driscoll? That's not the point of this series. Rather, I want to appeal directly to the words of Jesus himself because Jesus spoke about hell more than every other person in the Bible put together. Did you know that? Over 20% of Jesus' teaching is about the afterlife and eternity. What awaits men and women, you and me, in the life to come? And he's actually very explicit and kind of shocking, as we're going to see in our text today. So let's do this. As you're writing your questions down, turn with me in your Bible to Luke chapter 16, where we are going to begin our exploration. Matthew, Mark, Luke, it's the third book of the New Testament. It's a gospel or good news. And I originally titled this message, if you see, I call on it, The Good News About Hell. And you may be like, okay, what good news could there possibly be about hell? Track with me. Jesus is going to surprise us here with this fascinating glimpse into the afterlife. He tells a story about two men who actually die. And as they pass from this life into the next one, one goes to a place of everlasting blessing and the other to a place of fiery torment. What do you make of this? Luke 16, let's read this together starting at verse 19. It says this, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Disgusting detail. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. Now their time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, 
son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he's comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said. But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent or change their mind. He said to him, If they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone does what, church? Say it rises from the dead. It's a fascinating story, kind of freaky, yeah? In fact, let's just take a moment to break this down by drawing a picture of it. Take out your crayons. We always, you guys know I like to draw here, and we gave you room in your notes today to draw, so here's what I want you to do. Take your pen, and where it says, let's draw the scripture together, draw a giant, enormous circle. Can you draw a circle in your notes just like that? And then just draw kind of a straight line right across it, kind of intersecting that circle right there. Everyone doing that? Oh, look at you. You, you're, you are dissecting the Bible. Basically, Jesus says, there's this dude named Lazarus. So let's drop Lazarus up here. And Lazarus is this poor man. He's actually a diseased beggar. He's basically homeless, decrepit. He has nothing to eat. Verse 21 says, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Disgusto. So basically, this guy is the lowest of the lows here. And in Jesus's world, it meant this. If somebody was poor, they had no money. If they were diseased, they had no health. That must be God's judgment on them. They must be a bad person. But Jesus says, here's a twist. When this guy Lazarus died, the angels carried him to Abraham's side. And Abraham's side is simply a Jewish way of talking about heaven. So just write heaven right there because that's where Jesus places Lazarus in his story. In the place of blessing, in the presence of God, in the presence of the forefathers of his faith. At the same time, Jesus says, there's this rich man who also dies, and he goes somewhere different. He doesn't end up in the place of blessing by Abraham. He ends up in hell, candidly. What does it say there? Where he was in what? Torment. This is where it gets a little bit hot, doesn't it? Because you're like, ooh, man, okay, this is where I get uncomfortable in church, the idea of hell. Just track with me because Jesus is very subversive here this was shocking to Jesus's listeners. Because in their day, wealth, if you got money, God must really like you. You got health, God must really like you. My, how things change. Health and wealth and God loves you. That's what Jesus was turning on his head here. He said, everybody would have been like, surely the rich man would end up in heaven because he's been blessed in this life. He'd be blessed in the life to come. He's a righteous person. But there it is, Jesus says, two men die. One goes to heaven and it's not who you think. The other guy goes to hell and aren't you surprised? The diseased beggar who lived a cursed life on earth winds up blessed in the afterlife. The rich man who lives a blessed life on earth winds up cursed in the afterlife. And verse 26 ends with this note of finality. Look at this disturbing verse. And besides all this, Jesus said, between us and you, a great what? A great chasm has been fixed so that those who want to go back and forth can't. So in the middle here, let's just complete this. Draw one more line, make it like a belt here, and write the word chasm. You're not crossing from one to the other. So all the kind of speculation and talk about, what if maybe you can make a decision to change things in the afterlife? Jesus is like, "Mm, not really. 
There's a chasm between the two. Now, let's just sit and look at this. What do you make of this? Here's the deal. Most Americans, Westerners, if they believe in hell, assume, well, bad people are going to be here. But Jesus seems to suggest, he says, oh, no, 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 good people are going there too. And you're like, okay, so how is any of this good news? (laughs) If you take a closer look at what Jesus is getting at, you're going to discover two encouraging truths. Because the reality is, guys, hell is not some like old school doctrine meant to obscure your view of God. Rather, hell tells us about the, the, the truth of our heart, and then it reveals a stunning truth about God's heart. Let's start with the truth about our heart first. I don't know if you noticed this, but only one of the men has a proper name. What's his name? His name is Lazarus, the poor man. And that's crazy. If you are familiar with Jesus' parables and stories, he never gave names to his characters. They're all called by generic names, like uh, the prodigal son, the shrewd manager. But Lazarus is one of the only characters in Jesus' story who has a proper name, but the rich man doesn't. Why is that? The contrast is intentional. See, in Israel at that time, the rich man couldn't possibly have been a non-believer, okay? He could not have been an atheist or a pagan. The rich man would have believed the God of the Bible. He would have prayed to the God of the Bible. He would have obeyed the laws of the God of the Bible, yet he finds himself in hell without a name. Why? Look at verse 25. He says, remember in your lifetime, you received your good things. In other words, the good things that you built your life on, the things that in fact you built your identity around, they're all gone. Author Tim Keller, who I'm indebted to, he notes this. He says, status and wealth was the basis for his identity. And now that his status and wealth is gone, there's no him left. He's just a rich man with no name. He has no identity. He's gone. He's nameless. And the idea here is that Jesus is is redefining our definition of sin. If you walked in tonight and you said sin, religious word, what is sin? Everybody here would be like, kind of like breaking the Ten Commandments or breaking God's laws. Even if you're not a church person, most people define sin as like doing something bad. And that's true. But Jesus is saying, but what's underneath it? What's at the heart of most rebellion? See, sin is not just breaking God's law. It's about building your identity on anything but God. It's actually turning good things in this life into ultimate things. Give you an example. Think of, think of your career if you're working, or, or money, okay, if you have some money, or relationships, or sex. On the surface, nothing is wrong with those things. God gives us all sorts of abilities. He gives us a relationship. But let's, let's say someone makes relationships their God, small g. If, if, if they get all their self-worth out of their relationships, when their boyfriend, or their girlfriend, or their spouse becomes their reason for living, Their only way they know they're valuable is because I'm with him or with her. When their relationship falls apart, what happens? So do they. Their boyfriend or their girlfriend leaves, they're shattered. If they're single, oh, they can't stand to be alone. If they can't have kids, they get embittered. People like that are literally hell to be around, aren't they? That's who this rich man is. His sin isn't being wealthy. It's that in this life, his wealth becomes his identity. He's so consumed by his all, his all his little deal. He's actually blind to the needs of people in front of him. Lazarus sat at his gate and he would step over him every day. <laughs> he was very hard-hearted. So what was blessing to him actually ended up meaning he was cursed. That's why he's in hell. He stepped over people and focused on himself. And people who do that are held to be around, aren't they? I'm going to take a risk here and give you an example from reality TV, which I think deserves a special level in hell. (laughs) 
Has anybody ever seen Real Housewives of Beverly Hills? Can we just acknowledge this? Who can, who can, oh, this is hilarious. Nobody. No, thank you very much. One honest person. Oh, my goodness. Awful show. I'll just acknowledge this. I'm going to blame my wife for this. I'm going to throw her under the bus. She's chattel surfing. I peek in. We got, got hooked. I don't think I'm going to hell for watching it, but I do think it gives us a preview of what it's like. The show revolves around these six wealthy women who, like the rich man in Jesus' parable, okay, they literally live a life of luxury in Beverly Hills. It's, it's a, they don't wear purple linen. It's a little bit more sequins, but you get the idea. They have butlers, they have chauffeurs, and all these people serve them. None of them work, and they are the most miserable bunch of people on the face of the earth. They are just awful people. I'm sorry. They are backbiting. They are like materialistic, narcissistic, backstabbing shrews. I know that sounds judgmental. I just don't know how else to say it. I know. I understand. That's why people watch it because it's like watching this like car wreck in motion. It's awful. All their relationships are brokered on money and appearance. This 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 uh, gal was a child star, okay, and now that now she's an an alcoholic because she lost her career, okay. This is her baby sister, beautiful, striking woman. She is so jealous of her. She is resentful. At one cocktail party, she actually pulls her hair. They get in a brawl. She curses her out. This this one uh, was married to Kelsey Grammer. Actually, broke up his first marriage, and then in the middle of the season, Kelsey Grammer dumped her to get a newer model. So like all this like drama, it's just awful, awful stuff. They pretend to be friends, but they can't stand one another. All they do is complain and connive about money, sex, power, and appearance. Who had the latest Botox treatment? And what's crazy is they have all the wealth in the world, and they wreak havoc. They devour each other. They're constantly fighting. Ah, you did that. You're complaining, scheming. Will you ah? When I first saw the show, I was like, oh, I kind of repulsed, can you tell? Uh, But after a while, it was odd. I started feeling sorry for them. Here's the point. These are people who have constructed their entire identities around fame, status, and money. And yet in every episode, it has the same plot line. Crying, clawing, and backbiting. Ah! The Bible describes hell as a place where there is weeping and what? Gnashing of teeth. Constant conflict. People who are only consumed with themselves. Like the rich men. These rich women turn good things in life into ultimate things. And it ain't pretty. It's glamorous maybe on the outside, but but it's rotten at the core. That's why people watch. Now here's the deal. I don't want to just bash reality TV. It's too easy. Because this is true for all of us on some level, isn't it? It's not just rich people. It's religious people, too. That may surprise you to hear if you're in church for the first time. But Jesus is basically like, oh, yeah, you will find all sorts of religious people in hell, too. In fact, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, the Pharisees, they studied their Bibles. They went to church fastidiously. And yet Jesus said to them in Matthew 23, he said, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a what? A son of hell as you are. Have you ever wondered why religious people can be hell to be around? Be honest. Because their religion is God, small g. They don't worship God. They worship the God, small g, of religion. In other words, it's all about their behavior. We would never be like them. What awful, terrible housewives. We're church people. We would never do such things. We tithe. We give money to the poor. I'd never curse. I can't believe you said that, Tim Lucas. They go to church. They prayed loudly. 
And they said all these things and they were building their identity on doing stuff for God, but doing it all out of their own effort. They figured, hey, if I live the rules, if, if I follow the good life and live, live, live by God's rules, he has to bless me. He has to take me to heaven. And see, that attitude of pride and judgment actually for others corroded their character. Jesus said, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of your cup and dish, but inside they're full of what? Say it out loud. Greed and self-indulgence. There was a disconnect in their heart. And the idea here, guys, is that you can build a life around anything. Sin is simply building your identity on anything besides God. It could be riches. It could be relationships. It could be religion, even. And when you turn that into ultimate things, the source of your identity, the reason you have worth, the reason you can hold your head high, that's when you're going to hell. Think about the good things in in your life. Your career, your money, your relationships, your family, your talent, your looks, whatever it is. If you invest your life making those things the core of who you are, I'm valuable because I look this way, because he notices me, because I'm doing this and I've achieved this. If that's the source of your significance and security, you may believe the God of the Bible. You may pray to the God of the Bible. The, The roots of who you are, what you really worship is something entirely different. Something that if it's taken to its logical extreme, sparks a fire in your heart that can never be quenched. A spiritual fire, cosmic fire. Look how Jesus describes hell. Look at, look at the words that Jesus uses here. He says, the rich man is in torment. He is in agony in this fire. This is where we get those those kind of images of fire and brimstone and all of that. And this is where people kind of, it makes people squirm candidly because they're like, ah, fire pitchforks. As a pastor, sometimes I get asked, so Tim, well, just shoot straight with me. What do you believe about hell? Is it a place of literal? Is this, is this, is he literally on fire? He's like the human torch. Is that, you know, is it, is it a place of literal fire and, and torment? And one of the things I sometimes say is, well, you know, it's possible the biblical image of fire is a metaphor. And people go, And then I say, it may be a metaphor for something infinitely worse than fire. (laughs) What if you had to spend eternity with thousands of bitter, angry, venomous people who only worship themselves? (laughs) That's agony. Fire in the soul. An unquenchable appetite for something other than God that can never be put out and never satisfied. Some of you know this fire firsthand. I was talking with a man recently who uh, left his wife and is taking up with another woman. I met him for lunch, and I noticed something strange when I walked in. He was very jumpy, eyes kind of, you know, darting back and forth, very fidgety and restless. And he said, Tim, I, 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 I can't sleep. I feel awful. I, I can't eat. I have what I want, or I think I have what I want, but I'm miserable. He's lost his appetite, lost weight. He felt tortured inside. Fire. Self-imposed Torment. An agony in the heart as we arrange for life desperately without God. A, a life without love. A life without the love of God, which is no life at all. Because ultimately, you will start shifting the blame to other people about why your life is hell and begin living in denial about yourself. Do you know people who are hell to be around? In this, don't answer out loud, church. Oh. Some of us are like, I don't know, don't answer out loud. If you know people who are held to be around in this life, imagine them a thousand years from now 
in the next one. Take the rich man. Lazarus is in heaven. The rich man's in hell precisely because he ignored Lazarus through his whole life. But in verse 24, he says, send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. In other words, he still expects others to serve him. (laughs) The guy is in hell and he's like, oh, it's awful in here. Lazarus, get me a Poland spring. It's terrible. I don't deserve, get me a Long Island iced tea, Lazarus. It's it's mind-boggling. On earth, he completely ignores Lazarus. And now that he's in hell, he's still bossing the poor guy around. Rich people are crazy, aren't they? They're nuts. His heart's on fire. Nothing changes. He's still blind. What's more, notice something else insane. The rich man doesn't actually ask to get out of hell, does he? He just tries to get Lazarus in. (laughs) That's amazing to me. He's like, come on down over here. How crazy is that? He doesn't try to leave. He just tries to drag poor Lazarus down. What does that tell you? God's not on the hook here, folks. Our heart is. God's not on the dock. See, again, the popular perception is that the Christian God, you know, throws people into hell. Like people are climbing up the sides, pleading like, no, no, let me out, please. And God's like, no, ha ha, it's hell for you, no. But the truth is hell is real and hell is our choice. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, the doors of hell are locked from the inside. Think about that for a minute. In other words, everybody in hell chooses to be there. They've made their life on earth right now about stepping over others, rejecting God, worshiping themselves, and now in eternity, God simply gives them what they want. See, it's the logical conclusion, guys, to the life they began living on earth. This guy doesn't try to get out. He just tries to get Lazarus to come in. And what's more, I love this. He strongly intimates that God didn't give him enough information. Look at this. He says, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Like, you know, um, I'm sorry, time out. I wasn't aware this was going to be the outcome. You know, the whole eternal fire thing. I don't really deserve to be here. Uh, Lazarus, Lazarus, where's Lazarus? Can you go tell the rest of the housewives how hot it is down here? okay? This is so unfair. He's still in denial. Even in fire, he still blames God. Do you see the fire in his heart? Better yet, do you see it in your own? You see it in your own? Because the chasm here, folks, is as wide as the human heart. See, the Bible says God is love, perfect love, perfect love. And without love, there's no God. There's just you, and other self-absorbed monsters weeping for themselves and clawing one another. Hell. In the words of Tim Keller, hell is just a freely chosen identity based on anything else besides God going on forever. Reality check. How would you describe your current life on earth right now? Are you happy? What would people say? Or are you hell to be around? Because that's an indicator about where your heart's at. It's not about saying a certain formula or word so that, like, I think God heard me, I said it a certain way, and now I automatically get into heaven. By your fruit, you will be known. God dangles nobody over hell as a threat. He actually says, my deepest desire is to fill your heart with my love and my compassion, which only comes from my spirit. But it's your choice. You can't be proud. You just got to, you have to ask humbly. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. 
and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. How's that for good news? You don't have to go to hell. No one has to go to hell. It is a freely chosen identity that begins in this life, carries on into eternity, but you have a choice, and it's a choice that's made in the heart. Will you choose the good life for yourself or the God life, which is defined as loving Christ and loving others? Good life or God life? What you choose now in this life, in your heart, sets you on a certain course that will eventually culminate in the logical conclusion in the life to come. That's the truth. So that's a bit great reality check right now. I had to ask myself this. What is, where's your identity? Like, do I get my value being a pastor and communicating and stuff? Or is it just because I'm a beloved son of God, small ass son of God? God's crazy about me. Or does it become about me trying to get stuff from you so I can feel like I'm worth something? Can you look in your heart and see that fire? Can you be honest? Because the first thing hell reveals is the truth of our hearts, the fire inside. But the second thing it reveals is the truth of God's heart, specifically the love he has for us. This is radical love when you look at hell. Hell is one of the most loving things about God. What? I know. You're like, what? That, doesn't, that, that seems completely counterintuitive. The, I thought we'd been saying the idea of hell and judgment is contrary to a God of love. The idea of hell makes God seem, you know, like he's just got this angry heart, not a loving one. Then you're missing the punchline that Jesus gives here. Look at the passage, verse 27. What does the rich man ask for his five brothers? What's he say? He says what? Send Lazarus back to warn them. In other words, he says, I want a miracle. Verse 30, he says, if someone from the dead goes to them, they'll repent. They'll change their mind. They'll change their life if you just send someone back from the dead. I want you to imagine this. He's got five brothers. I want you to imagine these guys are all rich. They're all sitting around playing poker. And all of a sudden, Lazarus shows up. What the? (laughs) What the hell? You know, kind of thing. And Lazarus says, exactly. I have a message. There is a hell. And it's hot. What are they going to do? Of course they'll say yes. Of course they'll say, whoa, a dead man has come back to life. I better get serious about this God stuff. I better start going to church. I better start going to temple. I don't want to go to hell. And Abraham says this. He says, it will never work long term. If they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. In other words, if we were to have a supernatural moment right here and literally a dead man were to appear and say, watch out for hell, it's hot, how would you react? You'd be scared out of your wits. Let's just acknowledge that. Your heart might skip a beat. But three weeks from now, would your heart really change? Would your heart be magically filled with love for God or actually fear of him? Love or fear, what would your heart be filled with? I'd be scared out of my mind, okay? I mean, love is the goal, though. To love God and love others. That's the God life. The whole point is being in love with the God who is love and perfect love casts out what? Fear. What's the point? God's plan has never been and never will be to scare us into loving him. I mean, you know this. Think of our basic human relationships. Can threatening somebody make them love you? Does fear ever stir your heart to, like, love? Think about, think about your, 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 you know, your significant other. I think of my wife, Colleen. Obviously, I want my, life, my wife, Colleen, to keep loving me. But what if I was feeling insecure and I said, Colleen, you better keep loving me or I'm going to leave you. Don't stop loving me or I'll beat you. 
you're like, okay, that's creepy and absurd. It'll never work. In fact, it will drive her away. She'd be like, what? And that's the truth, folks. The fear of hell will never keep you out of it. I know a lot of Christians grew up in a lot of Christian circles who used hell as a scare tactic, as if the threat of eternal torment will somehow magically flip a switch and cause people to love God. Love doesn't work that way in our earthly relationships. It will not work that way in our relationship with God. Fear stokes the fire. I mean, I think, I, I, people afraid of hell may initially say, well, I better be good. I don't want to go to hell. Why are they being good? Are they being good for goodness sake? For God's sake? Or for fear of him? I just don't. In some ways, guys, it's just try, more religion. It's just trying to earn favor. It's actually just more selfishness. I don't want to be punished. I want good things. Not God. When I was seven years old, I went to a Christian camp and, uh, where the counselor uh, gathered us all around the fire, campfire at night, I'll never forget, northern frontier. And he held a marshmallow over the flames. And he said, you know, kids, everybody spends forever somewhere. Who wants to come forward? Raise your hand. Would anybody like to be saved? <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll take that. And so I raised my hand, and we prayed a prayer, and we sang a song, and then we had s'mores. <laughs> I guess that's when I was saved. Or was it? Was that the moment that I crossed over from selfishness and self-centered living into heaven, into the love of God, where now the Holy Spirit is working out of me and the love of God is flowing through me? Hardly. It's first when I became aware that, wow, everybody does spend forever somewhere. But fear can never, ever birth authentic love in your heart. It just can't do it. I was saved for six summers straight. <laughs> Every time I went to that camp, I prayed, Jesus, save me just in case of what I did over the past year kind of cancels out. <laughs> and I would go home after camp, and I'd be good for a while. I'd go to church, I'd join youth group, and then nothing actually ever changed. That's a problem. You listen to a Christian speaker who scares the hell out of you. You start getting good. You start superficially, you start reading your Bible. You start following the rules out of fear of hell. But guess what? You're turning up the flames. You're training your heart to respond to fear. And fear just stokes the fire. It'll never last. Only one thing can transform your heart for good and for God. What is it? Radical love. Radical love. It is the only thing powerful enough to reach in to your mistrustful, conniving little heart and melt it into a whole new way of living. The question is, where do you get that kind of love that penetrates that deep? That's the punchline of Luke 16. How's it end? Jesus says, they won't be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Wink, wink. Wait a minute. Who's telling the story? Jesus. And guess what? Only six chapters later, he gets to prove its truth with his life. As he hangs on the cross with the weight of Tim Lucas's sin, Dave Adamson's sin, Lockery's sin, it's the weight of all of our sin on his shoulders. Jesus died and he descended where? Into hell. That's what we say in the Apostles' Creed. He descended into hell. In other words, the fire fell on him instead of you, instead of me. See, unless you believe in hell, folks, you will never know how much Jesus loves you. You will never know. You will never have any idea how much it costs Christ to save you. Your, and your heart will never be changed. Think about it. 
Why did Jesus speak more about hell than everyone else in the Bible combined? Because he went there. On the cross, he literally prayed out. He, what, he prayed, he prayed, my God, my God, Father, why have you what? Forsaken me. Why have you abandoned me? Father and the Son have lived in perfect harmony in heaven forever. They have endured epic love that we know nothing of. It is the most perfect love you can possibly imagine, the most perfect intimacy. And when Jesus went on the cross and took the sin of the world, he descended into hell, and that relationship was ripped from him. Ripped from him. We make a big deal about Jesus' hands being nailed, but the emotional and spiritual agony he endured on the cross when his father had to turn away is nothing compared to what he went through out of love for you, out of love for me. Why have you forsaken me? Christ was separated by a chasm from his father. And when the son lost the love of his father, he experienced a torment, an agony, a fire we can't fathom. Jesus experienced a hell infinitely greater than you or I would experience in a lifetime. And he endured the agony we deserve. Why? Sheer love to show his heart. The cross is God's way of saying, I love you this much. It's Jesus saying, I am dying to know you. My heart, your heart, connected love, my love flowing through you. I will never leave you or forsake you again because I have been forsaken. Unless you grasp, guys, what Jesus went through on the cross, the agony, the fire that fell, you will never understand how much God loves you unless you see the hell he went through bring you to his side. You'll never know how much he cares. You'll never know the lengths he went through to make sure that you have a home in his family. That's what heaven is. Second Peter 3.9 unveils God's heart. It says this, the Lord is what, can we read this out loud, is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's good news, Yeah? The good news is God doesn't want anyone to go to hell. That is not part of the Father's plan. It's not part of his desire. He doesn't want anyone to perish. He doesn't want them saying, saying religious formulas or, or hoping, crossing their fingers that they're good enough. That's why he sent Jesus to go through hell so you could gain heaven. That's how much your Father loves you. Don't fear him. Love him. Trust him. Do not fall for preachers who are trying to scare the hell, of you, hell out of you. When people try to scare the hell out of you, it just, in some respects, it's like, well, it's true, there is a hell. But when they come at you with guns blazing, saying, have you believed? Are you going to leave tonight? Right now, you got hit by a bus. It's like, back off, dude. Because that doesn't sound like love to me. It may be true, but there's a way of talking about the truth that in the telling makes it untrue. Does that make sense to you? If I came up to you, Tom, and said, I love you, man. I'll never forget this. My senior year of high school, there was a kid named Brian and his girlfriend, Christy, was a cheerleader. He was on the you know, football team. And I'll never forget this. They were like kind of a dramatic couple. They were the housewives of Beverly Hills couple of Cedar Grove High School. And they always had these big meltdowns and dramatic confrontations. And they had a breakup our senior year in high school in, in where all the lockers were. And I'll never forget this because as she stood there against the locker like this, Brian said, I don't understand why you won't take me back. She goes, I've just had enough with you. And he just goes, I love you, I love you, I love you. Pounds the locker like that. (laughs) 
I was only 16 years old, and I was like, something's not right with that. (laughs) The anger, the violence. Don't let angry people, (laughs) imperfect preachers like me, get in the way of feeling the love of your father. The father's dream has always been to have you in his family for eternity, always. He made you for heaven. It's why you long for it. It's why you long for intimacy. That's what he wants to give you. And he's not trying to do it to scare you. He's not dangling you over the flames. Jesus didn't come to scare the hell out of you. He came to love the hell out of you. Amen? It's ironic, isn't it? Some, some people try to dog the idea of judgment and hell in order to make God more loving. And in so doing, they make him less. I mean, if someone says to you, I don't believe in hell, I believe in a God of love, I don't believe in judgment or anything like that, just simply ask them, well, how do you know your God loves you? And they say, well, I don't know, he just likes everybody. Listen, if God generically likes everybody and it didn't cost him anything, then you can, you can, you can like a God like that. You can feel warm fuzzies for a God like that. But if you want to be transformed from the inside out, start living for something bigger, if you want to sense the Holy Spirit's wild love around you, you want to sing, love so amazing, so divine, it demands my life, it demands my all, You've got to believe in hell. That's the good news. Hell shows us our heart, but more importantly, hell shows us God's heart. Could you trust him for that? Not just in your head, not just a formula, but in your heart. If you only hear sound bites about hell, you can twist it, guys. You can create a pretext for cruelty. You can. But to really see how all the plot lines of the Bible regarding love and justice come together in Christ, who didn't come to bring judgment, but to bear judgment, He went to hell for his enemies. If you understand that truth, if you grasp that, that that was you, it will change you. It will touch you at the deepest place and it will fill you with the authentic love of Christ in your life that will take you safely by his side in the one to come. But it's your choice. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us right now. Father God, I thank you so much for this truth. Jesus, thank you for talking about hell. Thank you, Father, that um, we don't live in this binary world, Lord, where it's up to us to say the perfect prayer that somehow magically punches our ticket. Father, it's something that happens in the heart. It happens in the heart. So I invite your Holy Spirit right now, even to be in this room, people who are watching online, would you just right now enter their heart by your Holy Spirit, God? Would you just let all those words, all of the human words drop to the floor, God, in awe of this God who's radiating love right now? Father, we've been hard-hearted. We don't want your love, God. For whatever reason, that broken piece of us doesn't trust you. But God, I pray right now, would you just fill this room with faith, God? Blow away, Lord, all of that fear and that junk that we have gotten in there, God. Holy Spirit, just release your truth right now in the hearts and minds of your people. We pray that in the power, in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said together, amen. Thanks for listening to Liquid Church Media. If you were inspired or challenged by today's message, we hope you'll tell a friend. For more content, log on to liquidchurch.com or visit one of our campuses in the New Jersey metro area. Liquidchurch.com, where truth is relevant and grace wins.